interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. Our guest today is Harry Vinswanger. Harry is a philosopher, a member of the Ayn Rand Institute's Board of Directors, and was an associate and friend of Ayn Rand. He's a columnist on political philosophy for Forbes.com and is the author of How We Know, a book on the theory of knowledge, which I think, Harry, will be out pretty soon. Uh, I'm hoping it'll go to the printer today. Great. So one of the most pervasive arguments against capitalism and for the welfare state is that capitalism produces an intolerable amount of inequality. And in a recent Forbes column, President Obama stopped damning achievers for their virtue. Harry dissected this argument, and I'm pleased to have a chance to talk to him about it. So, Harry, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thank you. Uh, So we'll be linking to the piece uh, in the comments to this podcast, but I want to start out with a distinction you make between equality of rights and equality of outcome. Can you explain that distinction and why you think it's important? I make a distinction between equality of rights and equality of conditions. I don't think outcomes is any different from opportunity. That is, whether you're talking about different people earning the same amount of money, which is equality of results, or you're talking about different people having the same opportunity, it's this same kind of phenomenon, which is differences among people that are not due to what they've earned are morally irrelevant. What counts is differences in how they are treated by the government. The government cannot discriminate on behalf of or against any group or any individual. There must be equality before the law because everyone has the same rights the same right to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, it's pointless to distinguish equality of results from equality of opportunity because opportunities loom large in results. So if you're born today of wealthy parents in Darien, Connecticut, and you uh, have an opportunity to go to the finest private schools from which you will be likely accepted at one of the Ivy League colleges, your opportunities are much greater than if you're born in Bangladesh to destitute parents. And uh, obviously the results are going to be different depending upon the opportunities being different. There's no right to have the same amount of money as other people and there's no right to have the same type of opportunity as other people. There's only the right to be treated the same by the government, to be free to utilize whatever you have, uh, whether it's modest or great in terms of abilities and in terms of opportunities. Now, if you try to legislate equality of results or equality of opportunity, you have to violate rights. You have to treat people differently 
grant them different rights. For instance, the idea of the progressives and Obama is we'll take from those who are wealthy and distribute it to those who have less income and less opportunity. But that's violating the rights of those who've earned their wealth in voluntary trade and productive work uh, to, in order to pr uh, confer an unearned benefit on others who happen to have less. There's no obligation morally for uh, a person who has more even to help those who have less. The morality of altruism says that man's duty is to serve others, that he exists only for the sake of what he can do to help others. I say, and Ayn Rand said, that a man's life is his own. He's not born in debt to anyone, no matter whose need. And that the comparison of your situation to others is per se not proper. You shouldn't be thinking about, do others have more? Do I have more than them? You should be thinking about, what can I do to achieve my values? So, I mean, that's a really different view. And I think, you know, the, the, I think a lot of people, we're okay with certain kinds of inequality, right? So we're okay for the most part with the fact that some people get high grades and some people get low grades. Um, but economic inequality is often thought of differently. And let me read a quote from your article that I think helps us get a little bit to why. You say, quote, the national income is regarded by people such as Obama uh, as a common pot. Well, then some groups take from that pot more than their share. In Obama's world, if farmer Fred harvests four pumpkins and farmer John harvests two, Fred has taken two-thirds of the harvest for himself. He should be ashamed. It's unfair. It's a crisis. Now, I think people, again, they can see that. They can see, well, th th there's no big problem if you work hard and grow four pumpkins and another guy works hard and only grows two. Um, but they don't see wealth as created by individuals through their own virtuous effort in a market. They just see, you know, there's money out there and some people seem to get a lot, usually for pretty crummy reasons, and some people get a little. So what I'd really like you to break down for people is this connection between um, – you know, say the, a guy on an island growing pumpkins, and what we see in a market economy? Well, first of all, to give, you know, some credit to the element of truth in the view, the wrong view, generally, that you just described. We don't live in a market economy. And to some extent, people are getting income by virtue of cronyism. Banks are getting bailed out. People are getting a minimum wage that they couldn't earn on the market. All kinds of government intervention exists to protect people from competition. Uh, there's licensing laws, so the fees that doctors and lawyers can charge are artificially held high because entry into the market is uh, prohibited. So to some extent, to the extent that we're not capitalist, to the extent of the statist elements in the economy, the money that people get is not assignable strictly to their own efforts, but has to do with political 
patronage. <clears throat> but under capitalism, to get back to the real intent of your question, nobody can acquire a dime except by, by being paid that dime by someone voluntarily who thinks he's getting more than a dime's worth of value out of it. In a free market, no one in enters to make a trade unless he is going to profit, and that goes for the buyer and the seller. Nobody engages in trade, as opposed to charity, which does exist, but which is you know, not the essential. But when you buy and sell on a free market, the only reason you do so is that you expect to gain more than you give up. So a market trade is a win-win relationship. And therefore, all the money that anyone acquires under a free, laissez-faire capitalist market, he has earned just the way those pumpkin growers have earned it. He has produced something that other people wanted more than the money they gave him for it. So, in effect, they have elected him by their dollar votes, as it used to be put. The reason why, to the extent the market is free, the reason why the millionaires and billionaires are millionaires and billionaires is because people have paid them, paid them gladly. They've bought the iPhones. They've bought the cars. They've bought the um, guitars, the pianos, the books, the clothes, all wanting those things more than the money that they had spent to get them. And that is where the money of the rich comes from. It comes from producing something that people want more than the money they pay for. So on a free economy, again, to summarize, all income is earned, all income is received by someone gladly paying the price. And it doesn't come then at the expense of other people. Well, if it did, we'd still be in the cave. How do uh, leftists explain the fact that 200 years ago, we were, everybody in the world was uh, the richest down to the poorest, we're at a level below the poorest of the poor today. At least the poorest of the poor in the West. There were no, not only no cell phones, almost no one had cotton clothing. There was only wool. There was, uh, I mean, do I have to go through this? No automobiles, no airplanes, no electricity, no running water, no indoor plumbing. Etc. It was a barbaric, well, not barbaric, but a very primitive by today's standards condition. Where did all that wealth come from? Well, in the leftist fantasy, a few rich guys had all those uh, cars and uh, computers and cell phones locked away in their basements. And government was able to get in there and distribute them. I mean, it's just insane, of course. What happened is that People invented new products. People risked their savings to bring them to market. And the ones that succeeded made good profits for the people who uh, created those goods. So wealth is created. It's not just shifted around. It is not a fixed pie. 
It is not the case that when someone gains, someone else loses. The whole story of human history is the creation of unprecedented and undreamed of wealth by the use of um, intelligence to devise and engineer and bring to market new fabulous products. So from a certain perspective, it, it's always seemed to me that th the inequality argument is stupid. I mean, it's who cares if a guy has a, more than me if, uh, you know, I have the opportunity to, you know, live better and if I'm, you know, doing okay. Well, I, it would never occur to me to compare myself to others. But, I mean, the, this argument has a lot of cachet with people, and I'm curious as to why that is. Why, what do you think is compelling in addition to just confusions over the idea that one person's gain is another person's loss? Even if one person's gain were another person's loss, there's no argument for equality of condition. I mean, take a game. You're playing uh, baseball, and you make a home run. That's the other team's loss. <clears throat> there's no argument whatsoever that results should be equal, uh, opportunities should be equal, anything should be equal other than a single standard that the government uses to judge people as people, not, you know, play favorites and have scapegoats. So there's the equal rights, but obviously that's not what we're talking about. So why do people care at all about equality? I mean, you could just, you could make exactly the same case that equality is unfair, as inequality is unfair, or that the ideal is that 10% of the population have a thousand times as much wealth, or that 10% of the average, or that 10% of the population have three times as much wealth, or that 10% of the population have exactly the same wealth. There's no meaning, there's no moral meaning or dimension to those statistics. They're just statistics. Now, you're, I'm not answering your question. It's all preparatory to answering it. Why are some people so exercised? Well, I think there's two categories. They're the people who haven't raised these questions for themselves and have just kind of accepted what the intellectuals are putting out these days, which is egalitarianism. But what motivates the people who really thought about it and are still attracted to equality of condition, egalitarianism. It's the lowest human emotion, envy, resentment of people who are better than one for being better. I think the psychology, if this is what you were asking about, behind the pushers of the equality campaign, not everybody who falls for it, but those who are pushing it. The, the psychology of them, uh, of those people, is self-loathing, guilt, fear, and therefore resentment at anyone who's confident, successful, happy, leading to, if a, you have a low enough psychology, the desire to bring them down. Hatred for the successful and happy, for being successful and happy, is what is the ultimate driver of this movement. 
I think it's, uh, I mean, a lot of people hear that, and at first it, do, it doesn't resonate much. Um, but, I mean, I, I, we, I think we've all encountered that just in our lives. I mean, I remember the schoolyard bully who would punch you if you made good grades because it yeah. made him feel bad about making bad grades. And when you look at, you know, a, a, a philosophy like egalitarianism, look, those bullies sometimes grow up, and then they sometimes grow up to become intellectuals who concoct theories to, in effect, beat people down the way that they used to as children. Yes, absolutely. Um, the the people who don't credit this psychology are innocent and are uh, don't have these feelings, and therefore it's hard for them to conceive of it. But look at the Occupy Wall Street crowd. Look at the the venom with which you uh, see the rich attacked. It, it's not explainable in terms of some actual concern with injustice. It's the, the special personal hatred for the successful and the rich uh, is the sign of the resentment of virtue for being virtue. Um, if you just surf the web and you look at some of these leftist sites and you see the kind of comments filled with four-letter words uh, directed at the rich uh, and anybody who opposes their agenda, it's, it's eye-opening. So to those who, who think, no, there's, it, this is just an innocent movement, concerned with some real concept of justice, even if you, Harry Binswanger, think it's the wrong standard of justice. It's not that for the leaders. Just go surf the web, uh, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Now, on the, the other side of it, you, you say something really interesting in your article. You say that it's the interests of a poor person that the people about him, around him be as wealthy as possible. Now, can yeah. you explain that one? Yeah, I mean, everybody knows that. It's just that they haven't... Let me put it this way. Everyone in their own practical lives would immediately grasp it if the situation arose. For example, suppose you are offered the chance to live in one of two neighborhoods for the same expense and the same exact home, but you can either live in... Old Beverly Hills next to millionaires and, I don't know, billionaires live there, but let's say. Or you could live in some slum in uh, some in Detroit, you know, uh, surrounded by people who are destitute and uneducated. Everyone would see, oh, yeah, well, I want to I live where people are, are wealthy, not where people are poor. For one reason, the people who have money to burn can employ you easily at a very handsome price. For example, I'll give the, in the column, I'll give the example. You can work as a chauffeur or a pool cleaner for wealthy people, and they don't even notice, you know, what it costs uh, to to pay you a good salary, or you could take care of some billionaire's home in uh, 
in uh, Lake Tahoe, which he only visits once a year for a couple a couple of days. You know, they all have lots of homes. You could just live there free to just to take care of it, uh, and they'd probably even pay you to do something. Now, if you're in Detroit in this slum, who's going to be able to pay you anything? What kind of life is that? So people recognize, oh, yeah, I want to be around wealthy people. I want to be around successful people. I want to be around the people with ability, people who have interesting ideas and are active. No one would say, no, I don't want that. I want to live around trailer trash. I want to live amidst poverty of people who do nothing but sit on the couch, watch TV, drink beer, and burp. That's my ideal. Uh, so it, what, what people recognize in their personal lives, they need to recognize on a society-wide scale. It's a principle that man is a value to man. That is, man the producer, man the achiever is a value to everyone, and man the loser is a value to no one, including himself. One of the points that you mentioned earlier, but I think we glossed over, and it's one of the, I think, the most important and profound parts uh, of your article, is this idea that inequality is not an issue of fairness or unfairness. Because the conservatives will often tackle this argument, and they'll say, look, of course it's not fair that we're born with different abilities and that some people make more money than others. You know, nature isn't fair, but if you try to make it fair, you create even more unfairness. And and you come at this from a completely different perspective. Yeah. And, I, and I, I want you to try to make clear to people why what your view is and then why it's wrong and dangerous even to approach things or try to answer this argument in the way that conservatives do. The um, question that has to be faced is, what is morality all about? Why do we need moral concepts? Why do we have to evaluate things as right or wrong, good or evil, beneficial or destructive, virtuous or wicked? Why do we do that? Why do we care? Maybe is it all just a taboo or a myth, just traditions or something? Let's throw it out the window. Okay, well, should you jump out the window? Well, if you jump out the window, you'll die. I mean, I would. I'm on the 16th floor of an apartment building. Maybe if you're on the first floor of a house, you wouldn't. There are certain things that aid your life, keep you alive, make you live more consistently, happier, have a higher standard of living. And there are certain things that hurt you drag you down, lead you to an early death, or kill you right away. And that is the fact that gives rise to the need to evaluate things. Then the next issue is what kind of evaluations do we give to nature, and what kind of evaluations do we give to human actions? Because facts of nature per se, cannot be evaluated. They can only be evaluated in relation to human action. That is, you can't say gravity. Well, I think it's a bad thing. No, gravity is neither good or bad. It just is. Rain, 
Now, rain is immoral. It doesn't make any sense. Now, if you want to have a picnic, you make the choice to go out and have a picnic, and it's going to rain. That's bad for you in relation to the fact that you are making choices. But in terms of nature, you can't evaluate it. So morality exists to evaluate human choices by the standard of what benefits man's life as a rational being. Man according to his nature, and his nature is to survive as a rational being, using his mind. So from that standpoint, we need to evaluate our choices, and we need to evaluate the choices that others make. But what about the unchosen? Well, somebody is born crippled. That's just a fact. That's like rainfall. That's not a matter of choice. That's not just or unjust. Now, maybe if the reason why he was born a cripple is some bad choice his mother made, then you can say it's unjust that the, to him that his mother made that choice in pregnancy. Or if somebody breaks his legs, you can evaluate that choice as evil. And that's why he's crippled. But if it's just an accident of nature, then it can't be evaluated any more than gravity can be evaluated. So morality exists to evaluate human choices from the standpoint of how they affect a man's life. And that's the only thing that justice is concerned with. Justice is only concerned with the volitional, the chosen, not with just facts that happen without being the product of anybody's choice, without resulting from anybody's choice. So an average of or your position in relation to some average is not a matter of your choices or anybody else's choice. So if I put you in one society and you, you've got 10 times the average income, then I whisk you away on a magic carpet to another society and you, and you have one-tenth of the average income. That Neither one of those are a moral issue. The moral issue is what do you choose to do with your life and what do other people do in their choices as to how they live their life and how does it affect you, their choices. Not some kind of statistical comparison. It's just morally irrelevant. You might as well uh, make, you say it's unfair that people have different hair colors. It's, It's not fair. It's not unfair. Fair is a proper choice made in relation to the uh, to the rights of others. Unfair is an improper choice in relation to the rights of others. So I wonder if you can apply this then, that framework, to one of the major arguments we hear, which is, look, if it's true that, you know, people earn their success, uh, then, you know, may- maybe there would be a problem with forcing them to hand over money to people who didn't. But luck is what really plays a major role in our lives. Some people get lucky and uh, earn a fortune, whereas other people get unlucky and they get injured. Uh, you know, they they have bad parents or get a bad education. They don't, you know, get exposed to the next technology that's going to sweep the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in order to remedy that bad luck and, uh, and not to reward people for something that they did not 
weren't really responsible for achieving, we're going to have some amount of wealth redistribution to kind of even the playing field. Who is we? Well, it's us. It's us, all of society. Except the person whose money is taken away from him, despite the fact that he earned it. So there, this, this whole approach is based on a collectivist assumption that society owns everything and doles it out. So the ultimate example of luck is winning the lottery. It is a matter of pure luck. But if a person wins the lottery, he wins it, whether it's by luck or anything else. And it is unjust to take that money away from him when everybody is entering the lottery voluntarily with the same hope. So the fact that somebody has, um, by luck, more of something than somebody else does not create any moral problem whatsoever. We're not parts of some collective that has to be evened out. It's not a moral issue. If he obtains it without violating anybody's rights, as he does when he wins the lottery, or oil happens to be discovered on his land. He's just got a house in Topeka. And a geologist comes by and finds his oil deposit. Suddenly he's rich. He gets uh, you know, one-eighth interest in the well. That's luck. There's no injustice in that whatsoever. Nobody has any theory according to which that could be called unjust, unfair, because there is no collective entity that owns everything and doles it out. It's, a, it's facts of reality that uh, whether it's, you know, through luck, which is rare that anyone gets wealthy by luck, or by the result of brains and hard work, which is the case for 99% of the people who get wealthy. Uh, the fact that other people don't have the uh, wherewithal or don't choose to use what they do have to make money is irrelevant to the fact that someone has a right to what he has a right to. Well, I want to end then with this question, which we've addressed in various ways, but I think we should take it straight on. The, one of the major conservative arguments we hear today tries to make a distinction between wealth redistribution in order to achieve equality, which they will insist that isn't correct uh, on this argument, mm -hmm. and wealth redistribution to help out people at the bottom in order to create some kind of safety net. Now, I take it, knowing you and knowing your uh, philosophy, let alone your comments today, you think that, it, no, it's wrong in both cases. But can you address why shouldn't we at least be helping out the poor through some of these programs, even if we shouldn't be doing it in the name of inequality? The question isn't why shouldn't we be helping out the poor. It's why should we? I don't want to help the poor. I mean that quite seriously. I don't want to help the poor. Some people do. I don't. Now, do I have an? Does that mean I am evil? No. It it doesn't mean that at all. Does it mean that someone has the right to force me to help the poor? By what right? My life is my own. As long as I don't interfere with someone else's living of their life, I have a perfect right to my own hierarchy of values. And um, 
you know, I might want to help some poor if we lived in a society where I wasn't taxed to death in the name of helping the poor. I'm not sure I would. But as a person's, a person, we are not all in it together. You know, Obama says the philosophy he's against is you're on your own. He says we're all in it together. We are not all in it together, and you are on your own, and a rational person wants to be on his own. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have friends and uh, romantic involvements and uh, profit from dealing with others. It means he's, his life is his own to live as he chooses. He is not born in debt that he has to pay off by service to the needy. So there's no, the, the question is not, well, why shouldn't someone help the poor? The question is, why should he? He should only do that which is a benefit to him. Now, to some people, it is a benefit. Maybe if I had grown up poor, uh, I would uh, be more interested in it. But as a matter of actual fact, I'm not. And I don't consider that the least bit of a failing in me. I'm, my, I'm not here to serve anybody but myself. You know, you're all going to be dead, listeners, for an infinite amount of time just as you were all non-existent for an infinite amount of time before you were born. The idea that this one life you have should be spent in service to anything beyond your own happiness is monstrous. This is it. This is your life. No one has any claim on you. Be free. Live it. Enjoy it. Harry, how can people find more about your work? Well, I'm reachable by so many different ways. Forbes.com. Uh, thank you for asking. HBList.com, or just Google my name, Harry Binswanger, and it's spelled, uh, I guess they'll see it in some printed form, but in case they don't, with B B I N S. W-A-N-G-E-R. So just Google me. I'm in Wikipedia. Real easy to find. Harry, thank you. Thanks, Bob. We covered a lot of ground in this interview, but I would say that one common theme is that the way we've been taught to think about inequality in the welfare state is wrong, and we really should question it from the ground up. In particular, the terms of the debate have been set by the philosophy of collectivism. Now, collectivism is not just a political view, but it's a whole way of looking at the world. Here's how Ayn Rand's student Leonard Peikoff put it in his book, The Ominous Parallels, which everybody should definitely read. Quote, Collectivism holds that in human affairs, the collective, society, the community, the nation, the proletariat, the race, etc., is the unit of reality and the standard of value. On this view, the individual has reality only as part of the group and value only insofar as he serves it, unquote. Now, obviously, the leftists who crusade against economic inequality and for the welfare state are collectivists. When President Obama, to borrow one of Harry's examples, says, the top 10% no longer take a third of our income, it now takes half, 
I mean, you can see that he's treating the group as primary and wealth as a social product to be redistributed by this welfare state. But part of Harry's point, I think, is that there are more subtle ways in which collectivism sets the terms of the debate. To advocate equality of opportunity, as many conservatives do, is to adopt a collectivist perspective. Instead of asking whether an individual's rights are being protected and whether he is free to pursue success, I mean, basically what we're saying is that the important consideration is whether his chances of success are equal to others. And if not, if someone has a lot of advantages because he's really smart or has great parents, well, then the moral thing to do would seem to be to deprive him uh, of some of his extra opportunity. And parenthetically, my colleague, Yaron Brook, he likes to point out that creating equal opportunity in basketball would require lowering the basket and breaking Michael Jordan's legs. Or you can take the argument conservatives sometimes make that the welfare state actually increases inequality because it makes it harder to escape poverty. And this is supposed to be an argument against the welfare state. Now, it's true that the welfare state makes it harder to escape poverty. But to put that in terms of it's bad because it makes inequality worse, it concedes that inequality is the problem. It reinforces the idea that we have a duty to serve the group and that it's morally wrong if an individual succeeds so much that he, quote, makes society more equal, unquote. It means that if the government can find a way to make us more equal by violating our rights, it should do that. By far the most controversial point Harry made was Ayn Rand's point that we don't have a moral obligation to serve others, that we have a right to exist for our own sake, and that morality is really about giving us guidance for how to achieve our self-interest. Now, whether or not you agree with that, what I want to stress here is that if you disagree, you are accepting a collectivist point of view. If you believe that we have a duty to help the poor, sacrifice for our neighbor, even if you say the government shouldn't force us to do it, you are, to that extent, advocating collectivism. So what then is individualism? Well, this is um, here's a quote from Ayn Rand that I think sums it up pretty well. Individualism, she says, regards man, every man, as an independent sovereign entity who possesses an inalienable right to his own life, a right derived from his nature as a rational being. Individualism holds that civilized society, or any form of association, cooperation, or peaceful coexistence among men can be achieved only on the basis of the recognition of individual rights, and that a group as such has no rights other than the individual rights of its members." Unquote. Well, the great problem we've had is that historically those who agreed with individualism politically embraced collectivism morally. They held that politically you have a right to pursue your own happiness, but then morally, well, your duty is to serve the happiness of others. I would say that this, more than any other reason, is what created and fuels the growth of the welfare state. Rand's uniqueness in this context, I would say, is that she rejects collectivism totally from the ground up and provides a fully consistent individualist alternative. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 